Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Man, I always be careful of how hard and loud I sing on mornings that I preach because I want to have a voice left, but those songs were so rich, weren't they? Such good singing this morning. I was so thankful. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. We are going to the beginning of the Psalms this morning. Uh, And while you're turning there, uh, maybe write this down if you're taking notes or just think about it. Uh, What is your manner of life? What is your manner of life? Because as we read the psalm this morning, we're going to see this term, the way, the way of the blessed, the way of the wicked. And when we hear this term, the way, we want to think of the way in which we live. So what about you? How do you live? What is your manner of life? What are your moment by moment, day by day, if we were following you around, watching, uh, what are your moment by moment, day by day actions? That's terrifying, isn't it? A little creepy, right, if that were to happen. If that happens, call the police. Uh, but, but seriously, you, you are with you all the time. Profound, isn't it? What is your manner of life? And I'm not asking what a snapshot of your picture-perfect, best-moment manner of life would be. Uh, What I'm asking is way more invasive than that. And I'm asking of myself as well, but what is your manner of life? And to put it another way, does your manner of life demonstrate that you are known by the Lord? Does your manner of life demonstrate that you are known by the Lord? Keep that in mind and then stand with me if you would. And let's read the six verses of Psalm chapter one together. Psalm chapter one, starting in verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, six verses with so much good and hard and beautiful and convicting and hopeful truth. Would you help us this morning to hear what you want to say to us? God, would you help us, God, to evaluate our manner of life according to the scriptures, but also in light of the good news of the gospel? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. 
You got an answer yet? What is your manner of life? You're going to come up here one by one and get, no, just kidding. Jesus actually uh, gives us uh, a lot of help and a lot of description of what your manner of life, what my manner of life, our manner of life should look like uh, in his teachings. We're just going to look at a few places. You don't need to turn there, but maybe jot down the scripture references uh, and look them up this week. But first, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you're probably familiar with this, he says, blessed... Same, uh, same kind of language and terminology. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Pause right there. These characteristics, these descriptions, could they be said of you? Do you demonstrate over the course of your life a poverty of spirit, a brokenness, a mourning when it comes to sin? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? We'll keep going. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is our righteousness worthy of persecution? Not is our goal persecution, but is our righteousness worthy of persecution? Later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 25, uh, we hear Jesus in what's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. He's preaching on the Mount of Olives, and this is what we read. We'll probably also be familiar to you. Jesus says, when the Son of Man himself comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Can you picture that? What an awesome and terrifying day that is. Gathered before him all the nations, and he will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are what? Blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, what do these people look like? He says in verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're going, what? Jesus, when did we do that to you? Verse 37, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you a drink? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you read, when you listen to Jesus's words in this Olivet Discourse, does it characterize you? Do you see hungry people and feed them? Not do you feed every hungry person, but when you see a hungry person, do you feed them? When you see a stranger, even if you're an introvert, do you run the other direction and avoid eye contact? Or do you get uncomfortable to welcome the stranger in? Jesus finally, in Matthew chapter 22, just boils it down as simply and as clearly 
as possible uh, in regards to what our manner of life should be. We read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. one of the religious elites, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, a second is like it. You shall what? We're going to work on our passion about loving our neighbor, right? <laughs> That's not even hard, right? I mean, there are hard times, but you shall love your neighbor as your... Is that your manner of life? Kids, I got like just a congregation of kids in the front two rows. I love it. What's your manner of life? Do you love God with all that you are? Are you figuring out to love your neighbor, your friends, the people that you play with, even the grumpy mean ones, right? As yourself. That is what Jesus called us to do. Now, couple more words of introduction before we dive into Psalm 1, and really a couple of words of caution regarding how I think you might hear this text, how you might hear Psalm 1. And I'm going to kind of paint two extremes. You may find yourself in the middle. But first, you might find yourself, as we work through this text, I'm not saying you're doing this on purpose or intentionally, um, but you might start assuming that you, all in your own strength and power, are the blessed one, right? Like as you hear Psalm 1, you're going, well, of course I'm the tree planted by streams of water, right? You're just default. And you start thinking of your spouse or your neighbor or your friends or your kids who are the ones that are like chaff, right? That could be, I will put myself in that boat. That could be your tendency, but I want to say, be careful. And And I'm saying this to say, be careful, not to scare you, Not to cause you to doubt your salvation, but listen again to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you people whose manner of life was lawlessness, was disobedience. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But on the other hand, so that was my camp. I'm sadly putting myself in that first camp, okay? I just put myself, I'm all righteous, okay? The second camp, though, as you hear this, you might find yourself beginning to believe that you have no possibility of ever measuring up and being loved by God. You know yourself too well. You are going to tend to bury yourself under the condemnation, guilt, shame, and weight of your sin. You're going to begin to think, there's really no way out for me. There's no hope for me. And I would remind you also of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, you, you, sinner in need of grace, you come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Physically, for your souls for your 
souls. In today's psalm, Psalm chapter 1, we're going to see the psalmist, likely King David, show us two different types of people, one blessed and one wicked. And we have to be careful as we read because certain snapshots of these people make them appear identical. And in many ways, they are identical. Both of these portraits that we read in Psalm chapter 1 could be men or women. One could be a man, one could be a woman. They could be adults or kids. We can have a blessed blessed adult and a wicked kid. We could have a blessed kid and a wicked adult. They can be black or white or brown. They could be from the United States or Africa or Asia or any tapestry of diversity that we could possibly bring together because they are human beings, both made in the image of God, the blessed and the wicked. But David doesn't just give us a snapshot. He shows us their manner of life. He shows us how they live. In this one psalm, a relatively rare amongst the 150 psalms, wisdom psalm, um, it's also an introductory to the entire Psalter, David is trying desperately to help his people understand that there are only two ways to live, blessed or wicked, godly or ungodly. Your, here, hear this. I want you to keep listening to the rest of the sermon, but hear this part. Your manner of life testifies to your standing before God. Your righteous living does not earn your favor with God. Do you hear the difference? It testifies to your standing with God. So again, I ask you, what is your manner of life? Let's look at portrait number one. Portrait number one, starting in verse one, is blessed. Blessed is the man. Blessed is a word we use a lot, isn't it? What does it mean? What does it mean biblically to be blessed? Well, John MacArthur was really helpful to me here when I was studying and reading. He writes, from the perspective of the individual, this is a deeper-seated joy and contentment in God. So, from the perspective of the individual, your perspective, my perspective, if we're in God, to be blessed is to have a deep-seated joy and contentment in God. Does that characterize you? When you're walking around, your disposition can be different than mine and different than your neighbor's, but when people who know you look at you and interact with you and talk with you, are you characterized by a deep-seated, unshakable joy and contentment in God. And then MacArthur goes on and he says, but from the perspective of the believing community, blessed refers to redemptive favor. It, blessed means you've been purchased back from sin's clutches. Amen? Like blessed means you are an adopted child of the king. And, and don't miss how these things are interconnected. The only way to have lasting, deep-seated joy and contentment is to be, by God's grace alone, a part of the redemptive community, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the sinless life, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone. Now, to be blessed, I just said a lot of words. Let me put it really simply, two words. To be blessed is to be joyfully redeemed. To be blessed 
is to be joyfully redeemed. Could that be said of you? Are you joyfully redeemed? David goes on. He says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. So he's painting us a particular portrait of a person. One of my daughters, I only have two, but I will not name the one, regularly asks me why the Bible so often uses the word man. She's curious because she wants to understand her value, how God sees her, which I'm so thankful for that. Now, it's a great opportunity for me when she asks those questions, especially in our current cultural moment, which is not as unique as I think we sometimes like to assume that it is, but it allows me the opportunity to tell her that in instances like Psalm chapter one, man refers generally to humanity, to all of mankind. In this particular verse, it might better be understood as blessed is the person, blessed is the man or the woman. The point being that all of God's redemptive promises are given to humanity, men and women, hear this, who trust in God, who trust in God. But it's also, side note, a great discipling opportunity for me with my daughter to show her from scripture that while God's redemptive promises are for all of humanity who believe in him, that he also created two beautiful genders that play distinct and beautiful roles, not to be shirked off or run from, but to be embraced as a picture of his creative sovereignty and of his beautiful love for us. Blessed, blessed, joyfully redeemed is the man, is the man or woman who walks not, stands not, sits not. David begins negatively, right? Did you notice that? He begins negatively telling us what the blessed person, what the joyfully redeemed person does not do. And this really isn't new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember God's instructions to Adam in Genesis chapter two, verse 17? He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Don't miss this. There are so many beautiful promises and so many beautiful do's in the Bible that we get to embrace and do and run hard after. But there also are a bunch of beautiful don'ts that are actually not handcuffs to wear, shackles to bear, but they are a pathway to freedom in Christ that we only experience through devoted, contented obedience to him. The do nots are good. The do nots from God are good. Sometimes the do nots from our parents aren't as good, right? But the do nots from God are always good. So what are David's three negatives, his three do nots? Number one, the joyfully redeemed do not seek counsel. And it doesn't mean they never talk with anybody that's not a believer, but they don't seek primary and decisive counsel from the wicked or from the ungodly. Let me say that again. The joyfully redeemed do not seek counsel, primary and decisive counsel, from the ungodly. Now, the word wicked here, I think, can trip us up because when we hear the word wicked, we think of ax murderers and terrorists, right? And make no mistake, ax murderers and terrorists are wicked, right? They are a level of wicked that is hard to even wrap your mind around. But here, the psalmist is talking about the ungodly, those who do not have the wisdom that is found in the fear 
of the Lord. He's talking about those who have not been joyfully redeemed. So let me ask you, yes, you, who do you seek counsel from? Who who do you go to when you need parenting advice? Who do you go to when you need marriage help? Who do you go to when you're making a big job or financial decision? Do you go to the good-intentioned, well-meeting, ungodly financial advisor? Or do you go to your brother or sister in Christ who has no degree in finance, but is an incredibly biblical steward of their resources? To whom do you go to seek counsel? David says those who are blessed, those who are joyfully redeemed, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Second, he says the joyfully redeemed do not live in close and intimate community with sinners, with the ungodly those who have not been joyfully redeemed. Now, again, be careful here. It doesn't mean that we withdraw and live a monastic life away from all unbelievers. No, but he's saying that the joyfully redeemed are wise in who they go deepest with, and they go deepest with others who have been by grace joyfully redeemed. This is why we believe so passionately in life groups here at this church, Life groups are where we pursue this type of Christian community. It's a crucial component of the blessed life, right? On TV nowadays, on the internet, the blessed life is always associated with money, right? And financial and material prosperity. That's not the biblically blessed life. The biblically blessed life is to experience the unfathomable redemption of a holy God. And to live your life here in this fallen world out in community with others. Now, one of probably a long list of challenges to this that you might find yourself in or be in community with somebody who finds himself in is if you're married to an unbeliever. Now, God wants us to marry believers as believers, but sometimes you marry as unbelievers. And then one of you gets saved and the other not. Hear me, we're seeing the ideal here. But you have to live this out in the challenges of your own circumstances. If you're married to an unbeliever, my heart is heavy for you. It will be hard in ways that it's not hard for somebody who is married to a believer. But hear me, God is what? With you. The joyfully redeemed have the Holy Spirit inside you and he has planted you in a church. So while you should be respectful and loving of your unbelieving spouse and you should be on your knees praying for your unbelieving spouse every single day for them to be purchased back from darkness and and saved into the marvelous light of Christ, you should also be very careful to surround yourself with believers, brothers and sisters, whom you can get counter counsel to. Not opposite counsel necessarily, just godly counsel. You're going to have to work hard to be both respectful of your spouse and wise at the same time. But the Lord, hear me, the Lord is with you. He will help you in that or any other number of circumstances. Finally, the joyfully redeemed do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffer is not a word we use a lot anymore, at least I don't. 
Basically, what he's saying is they don't sit with people who hurl insults at others. They don't sit with people who spend a significant amount of their life gossiping about others. They don't sit among a community of people who are characterized by grumbling and complaining. This is the way of the world. This is the way of all of us, right? And we intentionally choose as the joyfully redeemed to walk away from that mentality, to get up from that seat and walk over to a seat that is characterized by life and love and blessing. Amen? Amen. But then David goes positive on us. Thank you. Mr. David, for going positive. He says, this is what should characterize the blessed person. This is what should characterize the joyfully redeemed. Look at verse two. He says, his delight, the joyfully redeemed person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Do you love God's word? I heard one yes. That's it? Come on. Do you love God's word? Yes. yes. Praise the Lord. And the word law here actually means instruction. So while it is referring to the law of Moses, to the Ten Commandments, it's referring more specifically to any instruction from the Lord. So it's referring to everything you read in the Psalms. It's referring to the prophets. It's referring, referring to the gospel accounts. It's referring to the letters of Paul. It's referring to all of scriptures. Do you delight in filling your mind and your heart with the instruction of the Lord. Do you believe that God's word is truly good for you? That it is food and water for your weary soul? Listen to David again a little bit later in Psalm 119 verse 7. Listen, listen to this. Would you talk like this? Would I talk like this? Listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Church family, the blessed person, the joyfully redeemed person is known not by their begrudging adherence to God's rules. That's religion in its worst and most worldly form. The joyfully redeemed are known by their undeniable delight in every instruction, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Is that you? Is that something you aspire to? Do you delight in God's word? And do you meditate on God's word? Uh, the word meditate here, uh, as I was kind of doing a little study, is a little weird. It actually refers to just kind of walking around and mumbling underneath your breast. And I breast? Breath. 
And ironically, I found myself doing that this week. I was out walking around and I was praying, uh, which I do occasionally on Mondays, and I'm praying, and I, I had been studying this, and I caught myself, I'm praying and quoting scripture with my mouth. So anybody walking by thinks I'm a crazy person, right? But that's biblical meditation. That's Psalm 1 meditation. It's not just emptying your mind, for sure, not even just filling your mind with God's word, although that is a starting point, but it's actually reciting God's word to your own heart and to your own mind. That's meditating on God's word. Do you do that? Do you memorize scripture so that when you're in the heat of the moment that life throws at you, your knee-jerk reaction might be anger or sadness or grief, all understandable emotions, but you can immediately speak into those emotions with the very true, nourishing, all-satisfying word of God. Do you delight in God's word? Do you meditate on it day and night. David concludes this first portrait, this first description with a simile in verse three. He says, the joyfully redeemed person, verse three, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Again, uh, as I was reading and studying, John MacArthur was helpful in describing this verse, not so much as a tree that is planted, but a tree that is replanted by God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We, we are born in sin. We are born into a broken, follow, broken, fallen world. And by grace alone, for God's people, they are rooted up by him and replanted next to streams of water. And not just any streams of water, streams that in his providence, in his creative sovereignty, he has put there to nourish us and sustain us so that we can't say we might hopefully become fruit bearing. No, when you are replanted by the living God of the universe, you will not wither. You will bear fruit. Amen? When you just know yourself, isn't that hopeful? <laughs> to know that you're not in charge of your fruit bearing, that it's the God of the universe who has planted you where he's planted you. And finally, we can't gloss over the final words of verse three, or at least I couldn't. He says, in all that the joyfully redeemed do, they prosper. In all that the joyfully do, I don't prosper in everything that I do. I really did have to pause and go, wait a second here, Mr. Psalmist. I don't feel like I prosper in everything I do. I feel like I fail a lot. So is this verse true? Well, in this instance, we have to look, as uh, author Randy Alcorn says, not at the dot, the brief life we live on this earth, but at the line, the wholeness of our 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, and even farther than that, eternally at how God is going to use your blip, your dot, your small life in the scope of eternity. You see, a godly person knows because of what we read in God's word. A godly person is absolutely certain that they are growing. They are prospering even when they can't see what God is doing. Now, some of you have lived long enough that you have gone through seasons of life where you couldn't figure out how this could possibly be prospering. And now you look back and you go, okay, God, that peace that transcended all understanding, I didn't realize that was prospering, but praise you, God, that it was. That person who was so hard and made me so angry and I wanted to retaliate against, 
I didn't know the depth of abuse that they were experiencing in a home that looked picture perfect. God, you rescued them through my love, my patience, my forbearance. You rescued them not only out of physical abuse, but out of spiritual darkness. Praise you, God. You were prospering me. Isn't that good? In all our ways, we do prosper. The joyfully redeemed do prosper and bear fruits. I'm reminded in reading this passage of Revelation 22. Gives me so much hope and I just wanted to share it with you. John writes, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's what our current, sometimes easy, sometimes hard, sometimes obvious, sometimes subversive, that's what our prospering is leading to. We are like trees planted by streams of water that yield its fruit every day in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that we do, we prosper. This is the portrait of the joyfully redeemed. But David also paints another portrait that of the wicked. And this is the one where we squirm a little bit in our seats that we don't like to look at, but it's so important that we look at it. It says in verse four that the wicked, the ungodly are not so, are not so, are not like the blessed. The ungodly, they walk and they stand and they sit in the council of the unredeemed. And the unredeemed live like unredeemed people. They live like the world. Look at me. Don't be shocked by that, right? We should be more shocked and appalled when we, those who are blessed by God, live like the world, right? But when we go around and we see our governments and our school systems and the people in the community live like the world, don't be surprised. Don't be aghast. Don't be appalled. That's how you two once lived, in your fallenness, in your sinful nature. So what do you do? If you're watching the ungodly, live like who you are. This is gonna be profound. Are you ready for this? If you're watching at your workplace, at your schools, in your neighborhoods, the ungodly live like who they are, just keep living like who you are. Who are you? You are a sinner just like them, only saved by grace. And called, don't tune me out yet, and called in the midst of all that to be the light of the world. You are called in this dot that is your life to shine the light of the gospel around the ungodly because such as you were, you were that, I was that. And we want everybody we come in contact with to see a difference, a humble, gentle, gracious difference in us. A couple diagnostic questions that might be helpful for you if you're going, well, I see a mixture in my life. Like, who am I? What am I? Well, ask yourself this question. What do you delight in? 
Do you delight in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord? Or do you delight in the things of this world? Now hear me clearly, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy a roof over your head. It doesn't mean that you can't be thankful that you have a job that gives you a paycheck in your mailbox every month. But don't worship that. Don't delight in that. Would you have such a deep-seated joy and commitment? And I am talking to myself right now. Would I have such a deep-seated joy and contentment in who God is and what he has done in my life if I had no paycheck, if I had no roof? That is a tough question to ask, right? Where is your joy and your contentment rooted? What do you, who do you delight in and what do you meditate What do you meditate on? I think sometimes it's a misnomer. We like to say in our comfortable church settings uh, that, oh, the ungodly, the, the unsaved, they aren't really happy. Guess what? Sometimes they are. Like having a really cool boat is fun. I read about a guy this week who paid $500,000 back in like 1987 to have unlimited trips on United Airlines for life. How, I mean, I didn't have, I wouldn't have $500,000, but how cool is that? That's fun. He can pursue a lot of happiness traveling the globe, right? That, hear me, we got to know this. Don't assume that just because somebody has a lot of worldly pleasures that they're miserable. They might be, but they might not be for a season, right? But we know the line. We know the extent. And we know that when they pass from this life, they are going to realize that all of those material things were in vain, were short-lived. They need to know a deeper-seated hope and joy and contentment that is only found by being adopted into the eternal kingdom of the one true God of the universe. David writes of the ungodly in verse four. He says, they are like chaff. I'm real self-conscious to talk about farming stuff here in this room because there's some farmers in this room. And if you've known me very long, I am not that. But from what I read, (laughs) chaff, from what I read, chaff is, it is a frequent use, a frequent word picture in the Old Testament uh, from harvest time. Uh, And it describes what, as MacArthur writes, is unsubstantial, without value, and worthy only to be discarded. Oh, that that is hard to read. And it may sound harsh, but only when we compare our rebellion against God to another person who appears worse to us. But in comparison to a holy... If I, in comparison to Holy God, if I could get you to pursue one thing for the next year, I would say dive deeply into understanding and wrapping your brain around the holiness of God. Because when you see yourself, when you see others, when you even see your beautiful, precious children up against the beauty and awesomeness of a holy God, you will quickly say, I am chaff. I, I deserve nothing but being discarded. 
and you will fall on your face and cry out to the God of the universe, either praising and thanking him for the redemption that you have experienced in Christ or begging him for the salvation that he offers only by faith in Christ. Verse five, look at verse five. Therefore, in light of this, in light of the holiness of God, in light of the sinfulness of men, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But hear me, hear me. We don't have to lose heart, right? We read all the way to the end of Psalm chapter one. Look at verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows, there's that word, the way, the manner of life. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word know is significant because it carries with it a deep meaning of intimacy, not just a knowledge about, but, but a, a knowledge of who you truly are. The Lord is well acquainted with those who are his and he will not let us go. Why? Because you are awesome and you live perfectly like the tree planted by streams of water? No, if that's what you're hearing, you missed the point, right? You, if you are redeemed, you should still be truly terrified. The Lord knows the way, the manner of life of me? I'm out, right? No, because when the Lord looks at the redeemed, he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. Isn't that incredible? Unfathomable? Doesn't it lead you to worship? Paul writes to, Tim Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 19. God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. So I want to close with just a reminder of kind of the cautionary tales that I gave you at the beginning. Some of you, like me, are prone to self-righteousness. We read a passage like Psalm 1 and immediately we begin comparing ourselves to others. In that light, we know that they are the wicked and we are the righteous. Brother, sister, I plead with you to constantly keep before you Paul's words in Romans 3.10, none of us are righteous, not in our own right, not in our own strength, not apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus. None of us are righteous, not even one. We must not compare ourselves to others, but to the holiness of our creator, God. And if we do that, if we do that, we will fall on our faces. And then hopefully we will be meditating on the word of God, and maybe something like John 3, 16 will come to mind. Kids, probably some of you have memorized that. When, when you're feeling the weight of your sin, you'll remember, oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not, what's that word? Perish. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But there are some of you, as we mentioned, who hear these words and are thinking, 
fearing that you could never be truly blessed by God. You could never be worthy to be joyfully redeemed. You too often walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, and sit in the seat of scoffers. Too often you delight in anything and maybe everything but God's good word. Oh, friend, look at me. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And let me again remind you of his words, not mine, that we read earlier. Jesus says to even you, Jesus says to especially you, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's God's invitation to us. As long as you have breath in your lungs, hear me, person prone to self-righteousness and person prone to condemnation, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you will fall on your face and stumble in sin. You will in this fallen world. I will too. But if you've trusted in Christ alone, the only way to salvation, you can and should and must Keep getting up out of the muck and mire of your sin and condemnation, turning to Jesus and worshiping him for who he is, yes, but also praising him for who you are because of who he is. You are, if you are portrait number one, If you have responded to the good news of the gospel, you are, whether you feel like it or not, you are the joyfully redeemed. Let's live that way. Let's live that way. Let's pray. Father, it's good news. God, it's good news. It's good news even to have to ponder and think about our own rebellion. It's good news to even have to ponder and think about the fallenness of humanity It's good news because we also get to preach to ourselves that you sent your son Jesus to be portrait number one for us. It's good news because you sent your Jesus to be and to live a manner of life that we have not been able to live. And because of your grace, God, we praise you and thank you that because of your grace, that manner of life that Jesus lived is credited to our account. I, we, we want to try to understand it, Lord. We want to worship you more because of it, but we confess we can't ever fully get our brains around it, and so we just praise you. Father, I pray this morning, if there's somebody here that realized this morning that they are still living the ungodly life, God, that they would repent and turn to you. And God, for those uh, that have been joyfully redeemed, God, would you help us to live as who we are, testifying to your goodness and grace everywhere we go. Uh, God, be glorified, be magnified in us as we continue to sing, as we continue to praise you this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.